My name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I'm Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. We've watched this week one of perhaps my favorite movies. Uh, I've always enjoyed watching it. It's Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Funny thing. Romeo just before- plus Juliet. Yeah, Romeo Thank plus you. Juliet equals fun. Uh, just funny thing <laughs> I just wanted to say before we got into it. I did almost, as you were introducing yourselves, my brain went, oh, I'll just, I'll just wait until Jean says it. Holy shit, I'm Jean. I better say it. <laughs> that comes with editing the podcast so often. Yeah. Uh, but first, before we discuss this movie, uh, we will get into what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? Sure. Before we, before we begin proper here, I just thought it would be worth correcting myself for something that I realized I got wrong a couple of weeks ago. I think we were talking about fan casting for The Hunchback of Notre Dame in The Hunchback of Notre Dame episode, and I said something about Stephanie Beatrice being 25 years older than Zac Efron. I don't know where I got that idea from, but she is not at all. Uh, She is like seven years older than Zac Efron. For some reason, I thought she was in her 50s. (laughs) I don't know why. Um, (laughs) In any case... Uh, I just thought I'd clean up after myself, so... And I thought Zac Efron was, like, still 25, because I didn't realise no, how... he's, like, 30-something. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I just thought I'd clean up after myself there. So uh, does but that... anyways... Does that casting now work a little better? Does it gel a bit more for oh, you? Oh, yeah, it makes a lot more sense to me now. Yeah. I don't even know where I was getting all of that from, but... Um, you might to have be had fair, a different actor's like face in your brain when yeah, you, yeah. When, when we were talking about her. To be I fair, I haven't watched any of Brooklyn Nine-Nine since the first season because I switched yeah. over on this movie list, so I haven't seen her in anything for many years. But fair enough. Anyway, um, I watched this week... Uh, we, we Actually, Romeo and Juliet was... Romeo plus Juliet, I'm sorry, was uh, a kind of a tough pick this week because we had a, a lot of good movies that we could have chosen from this week, a lot of interesting movies with a lot to discuss in them. First off is Bad Moon, which is a werewolf movie directed by Eric Red. It's based on the book Thor by Wayne Smith, and it is about a single mother named Janet, who is played by Mariel Hemingway, who invites her brother Ted, played by Michael Parr, to come live with her and her son Brett, who's played by Mason Gamble, after Ted falls on a rough patch. Only the family German Shepherd Thor, who is played by the German Shepherd Primo, (laughs) realises that Uncle Ted is actually a werewolf. This is a a simple, cheesy horror movie with enough low-budget charm to keep things interesting. Narratively, it's very simple. It's less than 80 minutes long. Ted moves in, Thor gets increasingly suspicious and protective of the family, and then Janet starts to suspect that something's wrong. There's nothing especially original here beyond the dog element but it's all done very capably the thor versus ted face-offs are all the best bits this this dog primo works really well on camera and they filmed him really well and chosen their shots of him really well he's got these very intelligent eyes ted will be doing something and all of a sudden realize that thor is watching and they'll just stare at each other from across the way exchanging accusatory glances um the, the dog is so sweet with everyone, except for Ted, and it's so smart and protective that you get really concerned about what's going to happen to it. Yeah. It's kind of fun to sort of, like, 
narrate Thor's inner monologue to yourself as you go along. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm onto you. I'm onto you, son of a bitch. That, that kind of thing. That's what um, that's what we do when we watch nature documentaries. Yeah. I, I catch mm. myself sort of uh, anthropomorphizing themselves to yeah. a certain degree, but mainly just in their thought process. Uh, picking who's the villain, who's the protagonist of this particular... Yeah, like in Planet Earth 2, you see all of these snakes going after these tiny lizards, Mm. and you just think to yourself, Jesus, these are some shitty snakes. These are arsehole snakes. Yeah, but that that comes naturally to human beings. We we look for narratives where there aren't any, uh, and we read into the behaviours of animals and think of their behaviours as human behaviours. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I, I always find it interesting when a dog actor... Like, the dog's name's Primo. Yeah. Yeah. I always find it interesting when they are given a character name and they aren't just called their own name. Because just to my mind, that seems like it would be easier. But I well, like, yeah, it's, it's yeah. literally based on the book Thor, so... I suppose oh, okay, they felt that they enough. were kind of kind of stuck there, but um, <laughs> the, the the script is pretty bad. The the dialogue is hollow and stilted, and the the characters are all thinly drawn. Any nuance here is thanks to the actors. The werewolf looks a bit dodgy too, especially in the the god awful CG transformation that they have towards oh. the end. The nineteen ninety six CG transformation on a low budget. The location is gorgeous though, like it. It's a really gorgeous sort of remote house with woods all around it. I wouldn't mind living there. You know, the werewolf notwithstanding. Yeah. Although... Ultimately, I mean... it's, it's just a fun and forgettable horror movie. It's inessential, but, you know, Primo's a very good boy. Yeah. Good yeah. actor. He earned his treats. I next watched The Crucible, which is a historical drama directed by Nicholas Hitner. It's based on the play by Arthur Miller. Nicholas Hitner, by the way, who directed uh, The Madness of King George, which we already talked about some weeks ago. It's based on true events set in 1692 in Salem, Massachusetts. A whole bunch of the young girls of Salem are caught dancing around a boiling pot in the woods and performing strange rituals. And so they start to accuse numerous citizens of the town of witchcraft to sort of distract attention from them, prompting hysteria and a heavy-handed inquisition by the colonial authorities. They're led by the manipulative Abigail Williams, who is played by Winona Ryder, who tries to use the panic to get back together with John Proctor. Daniel Day-Lewis plays him. Uh, They had an affair before the the start of the story, and she tries to get back with him by accusing his wife Elizabeth, Joan Allen, uh, of being a witch, so she'd be executed. This is a strong, if unambitious, adaptation of a really gripping play with an excellent message against fear and mob rule. The play itself was inspired by McCarthyism and the Red Scare that was going on at the time. You can see it in every scene. Arthur Miller himself was called in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee to identify other communists, but he refused to cooperate. It, it hews largely to the true events of what happened in Salem with the added fictional dynamic of the love triangle. In real life, there wasn't one. Abigail was 12 in real life. Yeah. She's aged up here. Characters are the real people for the most part, and the general timeline and fallout are represented properly. I read a book 
on this topic a while back, and it is mostly the same here. It's it's a timeless sort of story about the very human phenomenon of hysteria. Salem was this tinderbox of grudges and ill feeling that was lit by accusations, and people's fear and prejudices all bubbled up. Reason is lost, and every defence starts to get twisted into more proof of guilt. It's really harrowing to watch, and it's depressingly timeless. Uh, There are a lot of modern parallels watching it now to conspiracy theorists and, you know, race baiting and the the general fever pitch nature of the modern world. It reminded me watching it of one of my favourite lines in all of cinema, which is, is from Men in Black, which is not a movie I'm... I hold in particularly high regard. It's just not really my sort of thing. But it does have a fantastic line in it that Tommy Lee Jones says where it, Will Smith says to him, you know, people people would know if there were aliens living among us. People are, people are smart. Um, and Tommy Jones says, no, no, a person is smart. People are dumb, panicky animals. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that's stuck with me because I actually think that line is very applicable in almost all levels yeah. of life. The Crucible and- is a fantastic play. I remember studying it in high school and it really does get down to a lot of the reasons why the Salem Witch Trials happened. Like, a, a lot of the cause of that and a lot of the cause for people, you know, pointing at people in McCarthyism, pointing at people and saying, oh, that person's a red... It was a lot of jealousy. There were personal a lot of grudges. personal grudges that caused it. Like, what's the name of the minister or the lawyer who comes into the story? Um, you mean the 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 older fellow or the one that's because there are two that are brought in. The younger fellow, There's Hale, Hale, and Hale. Yeah, yeah. In high school, we were tasked with, and I think you know where I'm going with this, Holly. We were tasked with performing scenes from The Crucible, and I was playing Hale. So did I, when I studied it in high school. Yeah. So, like, high five, hashtag Hale for life. Um, (laughs) When I was playing him, Harley and I sort of started joking around with the character, saying that he arrived at the farmhouse on the back of a giant metal eagle. Like, he sort of just swooped in and was going to come in and save everything. But, yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I I was obviously present during the study of the Crucible during yeah. high, high school. But I feel I really understood it when we studied it for a short period at university in our theatre degree. Yeah. Because one of the courses we did is called Applied Theatre, where we essentially do workshops uh, where we place ourselves within that world, within that context. Uh, the person running the workshop has all these tasks and activities planned yeah. to help us embody that space. And embodying that space of Salem during that period of time, yeah. due to a lot of the activities we were doing, really helped make it land because the, the first task we were given was we all had to get into a circle, close our eyes, and then the teacher would touch our shoulder if we were in the forest that night. Mm. And the people who were in the forest that night would open their eyes and be able to see the other people who did. But everyone else had to keep their eyes closed. So that sort of panic 
and with the family groups we were separated into, we had to work to defend our family member if they were accused. Yeah. Without actually knowing for sure whether or not they had actually done it. Yeah. So it was this amazing sort of paranoid... It is so... Grasping at straws to save the other person. It is so fascinating how quickly, even within an educational context, that you can slip into tribalism. Oh, yeah. It's It's fascinating. What's that? that, Is it... it Something called the wave. Uh, The third wave was an experimental social movement created by California high school history teacher Ron Jones in 1967 to explain how the German population could accept the actions of the Nazi regime during the Second World War. I'm quoting from the Wikipedia article here. Jones found it difficult to explain how the German people could accept the actions of the Nazis and decide to create a social movement as a demonstration of the appeal of fascism. Over the course of five days... uh, Jones conducted a series of exercises in his classroom emphasizing discipline and community intended to model certain characteristics of the Nazi movement. And so it it started to spiral out of control and it started to get into the other students at the school um, and it was like turned into this bizarre like um, people separating into their, their little their little separate camps and things. It's kind of bizarre. There's there's a documentary about it and there was I think it was made into a Netflix show last year so that was at a yeah. high school yeah probably not the best place to do something like that teenagers suck yeah it's it's a it's a smart way of addressing all of those issues in the crucible because by anchoring the story around these three core characters and adding all of the personal stakes arthur miller and and of course so the movie they provide something to latch on to it, it's a focus point in the chaos through which we can better understand the broader view. And the characters are all very human as well. Abigail is a, is a selfish and cruel young woman. John is this prideful, weak-willed, but ultimately well-meaning sort of a guy. Elizabeth is less interesting and more hollow. She's just a decent person with no specific character traits. But that's not what the story needs of her. Uh, but that is what the story needs of her, I should say. It yeah. doesn't need her to be you know, flawed and um, and gr- having a, any elements of grey morality because that's sort of the point of her character. She's meant to be the dog the that story. the gun is pointing at. Yeah, pretty much. Um, the smaller details around the edge are all very appreciated, um, especially watching it this time, having recently read the book on, on Salem Witch Trials. The, the journey of, of Reverend Hale, who is brought in to investigate things to start off with but comes to believe that it's all fake as things start to spiral out of control but by that point he has lost the authority to contain the situation the stoning of giles Corey. you talked about all the little petty personal grievances jean there's this guy putnam who is the father of one of the first kids to uh pretend that they are bewitched and he uses the chaos to expand his land holdings he basically manip- implies in the in the film i'm not quite i'm not entirely sure if it was ever proven with any degree of reality in real life but he sort of manip- he sort of gets his daughter to accuse his neighbors so that he can come in and take their land and add them yeah. to his holdings um the gamut of human reactions here is explored the film has more difficulty illustrating the changing moods of the mob, which swing wildly. That's kind of tough in a film. Um, the 
It, it kind of made me think that it would be interesting to see this kind of a topic happen in a mini series where you could really explore the different versions of it. Um, yeah. And, and the, the slow change and everything and really like a, the wire kind of thing where you just sort of embed yourself into this culture and watch it all unravel into like madness. Every, every episode after, say, the first one can follow a different character and their reactions mm. to things. Miller's script is excellent. The dialogue is wonderful. It's archaic but elegant. It gives the actors lots of great stuff to chew on. Daniel Day Le- Daniel Day Lewis is good. He he gets good monologues to perform. Um, he of course took his method actor thing to the extraordinary degree, like he always does. He lived like a pilgrim for months. He built um, a I house. He, I be- yeah, I believe he <laughs> built the house that his character lives in. Yeah. And he didn't bathe for that entire time or during the movie itself. And uh, somehow, despite that, still managed to um, get engaged to Arthur Miller's daughter, who he met on this movie, and they're still married today. Um, Whatever works. It's just Daniel Day-Lewis's natural musk. You you can't, (laughs) like, you know... Winona Ryde is in a little too deep, but she handles herself well enough. And Joan Allen is good, but she didn't remotely deserve the Oscar nomination that she got for this. That's just taken it too far. Paul Schofield, who I talked about in Quiz Show, is is once again a showstopper here as the imperious Judge Danforth, who is brought in by the colonial powers to oversee everything. He's a just a zealot, um, and Schofield is very menacing and uh cold the only substantial disappointment here is the workmanlike staging of nicholas hitner it's not nearly as interesting as what he did in king george it's kind of stuffy there are a few cool moments of staging but it mostly doesn't really have any cinematic flair to it it doesn't open the play up a bit it looks mostly dull and it has multiple sequences that they've shot day for night uh, and they're ugly as sin they have aged (laughs) terribly Definite always just it doesn't oh, work. I, yeah, but this is like particularly bad. Like there's sort of a, a kind of a, a reddish hue to parts Ooh. of the picture because of how they've lightened the contrast and everything. Yeah. Um, ultimate, ultimately, the Crucible is just an urgent and vital commentary on people. I think it's ripe for a staging with more flair, but the one that they have here is is still brilliant thanks to a varied and capable cast and of course miller's excellent original writing um it's available on amazon prime video if anyone wants to watch i next watched daylight which is a disaster movie directed by rob cohen have you guys ever heard of this no i can't say i have uh, it's about a, a major accident that happens in the Holland Tunnel, which is the tunnel that goes underwater from New York to New Jersey. And this, there's basically a, a whole bunch of... It's fiction. <laughs> I should say that. Um, there's basically a whole bunch of uh, toxic waste that's being transported illegally. And at the same time, criminals steal a car and go on a joyride and they're being chased by police. And... An accident happens in the tunnel. The car crashes into the toxic waste trucks. Crash, huge fireball. But and the the thing of it is, is like they're halfway through the tunnel at that point. And the thing about, I, I'm not sure how scientifically accurate um, what happens in this movie would be in real life. But the way that they described it on the special features was that uh, fire is 
you know, fire seeks air. Um, so when this whole massive fireball goes off, it just like spreads out through the tunnel until it goes out both sides and collapses both ends of it. And it leaves the survivors, of which there are very, very few. There are only like a handful out of this entire tunnel fighting to survive under the stewardship of the former emergency medical services chief, Kit Latura, who is played by Sylvester Stallone. This is a, a fun little disaster movie with an interesting setting and decent set pieces. The opening explosion sequences is extraordinary. Like it's like a, it's like one of those Final Destination set pieces that opened the Final yeah. Destination movies because it just goes on and on and keeps getting worse and worse and worse I, as things go. I personally go. love those, so yeah. that's I'm right actually, up my alley. I'm actually going to send you guys a link because I do want to see your reactions to it after we finish recording the podcast. But it, it's a smart idea to kill most of the people in the tunnel because it keeps the car size manageable. You're left with about, I don't know, a dozen survivors, an eclectic group that gives the, the movie its expected personality conflicts and drama. It's... A traffic cop, a rich couple, there's a broken family, there's a trio of convicts who are being transported to prison, there's a daredevil celebrity who thinks of the whole thing as being sort of a PR opportunity. It doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it does what disaster movies should. It it puts a bunch of strangers in a high-intensity situation and it turns up the heat. Stallone is hilariously bad in this. He's just totally incapable of selling the emotion. I'm not the biggest Stallone fan at the best of times, but he is like genuinely not good in this in a way that he is normally, he's normally better than he is here. He's He's got this absurd scene where he's like yelling at, you know, one of the other characters has been injured and he's yelling to breathe and he's like, oh, come on, breathe, breathe. It's just like, oh, Sylvester, what are you doing? Does it make I mean, any it, more sense when you realise that they actually wanted Nicolas Cage? Yeah, that would have been a better movie. I, I really <laughs> like this movie. I really like, really, really like this movie, but Sylvester Stallone in it. I mean, I laughed at him at multiple points because he can't sell it at all. The character he's playing, uh, to be fair, is bland and personality-free, uh, aside from a, one of those cliched, tragic past TM um, that's that's meant as a, a shortcut to get us caring Amy Brenneman's female lead isn't much better either, but she acts like a human being at least. The best characters are the supporting ones. There's this traffic cop that's just been doing the rounds that is stuck down there. There's the people at headquarters who are trying to figure things out. There's a very fun, I suppose you'd call them a rich couple, um, that who are, are, are just stuck down there. And they just turn out to be the loveliest people in the movie. This old oh. rich couple who are there with their dog. Um, but... The movie loses some steam in the second half. After you trap people in a tunnel, you kind of run out of new set pieces pretty quickly. Uh, the The movie does well at keeping things moving, and the final escape is an extremely satisfying bit of effects work, but it didn't need to be two hours, especially with the poor lead characters. Ultimately, though, it's a very well-staged meat-and-potatoes disaster movie with a clever setting and premise. The human drama's hit or miss, and it, it comes too close to running out of ideas, but there's enough high-intensity drama and incredible pyrotechnics to make up for it. I next watch Mars Attacks. That, hold on. I read here that the truck that was had the barrels of toxic waste was going to New Jersey, not to New York. <laughs> I think it would have fit either way. <laughs> 
I next watched Mars Attacks, which I know you talked about a little bit the other week, um, Jean, which is uh, a favorite of yours. I got to warn you, I didn't like it that much. So uh, brace yourself. Um, it's a, a sci-fi parody directed by Tim Burton. It's inspired oddly by the collectible trading card franchise of the same name. Uh, and it's about a collection of outlandish uh, parodies of B-movie stereotypes that face off against an invading Martian force. Uh, as I said at the top here, I didn't care for it. I, th- I found it to be kind of smug and hollow. Uh, the plot is a rambling series of sequences that are all parodying tropes from B-movies. It's a relaxed, sprawling narrative structure that allows for lots of tangents to address these ideas. There are a lot here that could be... There's a lot here that could be cut to make it more focused, but to be fair, that's not what the movie's trying to do. It's trying to hit all the beats that it can think of to, to make this satire. The problem is that it's it's doing so with no creativity. It often goes after the most obvious stereotypes, and rather than really commenting on it, it just points and laughs. It doesn't really have anything to say. It doesn't really have a point. It just is sort of like, look at this. Isn't it stupid? The targets are about as unimaginative as you can get. Two-faced politicians, aggressive military generals, hillbilly trailer park denizens, self-obsessed intellectuals, ditzy blondes, slimy reporters. I mean, at a certain extent, at a certain point, hitting the most familiar beats without actually doing anything but smirking at them just means it ends up making exactly the kind of story that it thinks it's making fun of, uh, except worse because there's no genuine commitment. Take the president versus the general, for instance. You've got the president who is portrayed as this sort of smarmy, played by Jack Nicholson, smarmy PR-obsessed guy who who wants to be the person who initiates first successful for the the successful peaceful first contact. And you know the movie hates him for that. The movie makes him this horrible person. But then on the other hand, you've got the uh, the general who is this, you know, militant hawk who wants to blow everything up and is very irresponsible in that sense. And, and the movie hates him too. There's sort of a, well, everyone is terrible thing going on here. There's, there's sort of a, the movie refuses to take a viewpoint for itself. Um, there's kind of a both sides thing going on here, uh, that, especially in that bit that, that got me. The movie doesn't, yeah, um, it just has no point of view. It's, it's got nothing to say. It's, it's just look how stupid they are. For a comedy, I didn't find it particularly funny either. Again, it mostly just does the tropes and expects that to be enough. There are moments when they do try something, but it's such an obvious pull that it loses any wit. Like, we're supposed to, you know, think it's hilarious when the aliens come and use lasers to rearrange Mount Rushmore so all of the faces are alien faces and you know we're supposed to think it's hysterical when the you know the alien commander starts reading Playboy Playboy magazine and gets very interested in that I mean it's just really obvious pulls here the character works not the point of this either and it would be unfair to criticize that but absent a narrative with dramatic stakes I would have appreciated a few good characters, but instead the movie's so busy making fun of them that they become almost universally unlikable. We never really care. 
I liked Ripley and I liked his his grandmother. Plus, I liked the the first daughter, uh, played by Natalie Portman, who is the movie's MVP by far. Uh, that may be because they're the only characters the movie itself doesn't hold in contempt. The cast are going big in the absence of any actual comedic material. Glenn Close is very fun, but she's utterly wasted. I don't know how they convinced Glenn Close to do this movie. Not because she's bad in it, or not because it's necessarily a part that's not worthwhile, but just because she has so few scenes and she's second build. Well, it's because um, it's an incredible cast list. Yeah, it's absolutely yeah. stacked. Uh, oh yeah, it's a, it's a massive cast. And and Danny DeVito is very welcome in, I think, what is actually one of the movie's cleverer jokes, uh, taking a, a, a jab at sort of the, the practice of 50s and 60s B-movies to hire the one big-name actor to just do a couple of scenes and then chuck them on the poster and use their name everywhere, even though they're in the movie for like five minutes. He plays that, that character here. But everyone else, Jack Nicholson, Pierce Brosnan, Martin Short, Annette Benning, Sarah Jessica Michael Parker, J. Fox... Michael J. Fox, they're all mugging for the camera. They're not creating a character. But they're doing what the narrative wants them to do. They're doing what Burton wants them to do. They're poking fun and nothing else. I feel like I should say something positive, and I finally can. Um, technically, the film is very impressive. You have an absolutely fantastic Danny Elfman score that's maybe the best thing about it. And the alien and spaceship designs are all very fun and creative, yeah. and the CG holds up pretty well considering it was made in 1996. Burton's visual style gets a few chances to shine here, even if it is a little more workmanlike than usual. The alien, the bit, there's a bit where the alien... One of the aliens gets into disguise as, as a woman and infiltrates the White House in an ill-judged assassination attempt. And that was just one of the best sequences in the movie for me. It's the most Burton moment. The way that the the alien in the form of this human woman sort of just prowls around in this, this very strange way. It was the most Burton-esque visual cue and I, I really enjoyed that bit. Because the aliens don't understand how humans work. Not really. Yeah. Ultimately, I just, it was a real disappointment. I wanted to like it. I should be the target audience for it, but I just couldn't gel with it. Uh, I don't think it's nearly as clever or as funny as it thinks it is. It's like, it's like um, Tim Burton, he wanted to make a parody of Ed Wood movies, but he just ended up making an Ed Wood movie. I can appreciate your opinion on it. Like, I really enjoy it because it's the style of those 50s B-movies. I'm interested in it less for the character and more for just the style of it. It's a really good style piece, and that's what I love about it. Oh, yeah. It does a good job of capturing the style of those movies, certainly. I next watched Richard II, which is a historical drama directed by Deborah Warner. It's based on the Shakespeare play of the same name. It has a a gender-flipped... King Richard II, who is played by Fiona Shaw in this, who listeners may know as Aunt Petunia from the Harry Potter movies. Uh, Richard manages to piss off pretty much everyone, resulting in his deposition by his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, who will, of course, become Henry IV. He's played here by Richard Bremer. This is a, a great script and good performances, but it's poorly abridged and... It's very stage-bound. Um, it, it's a recording of the production that's done on the stage with minimal sets. Yeah. It was a version that they were doing in um, 
a play uh, that, that they were doing on the stage that then I think it was the BBC commissioned this and it became a wasn't done in front of a live audience, but it was like done on the cheap in a studio in these these very contained sets. Yeah, it apparently caused a bit of a controversy at the time as a result of the gender swap, which is kind of hilarious to think about it. But everyone sort of was like, "You can't do that to Shakespeare," <laughs> like all of that crap. <laughs> yeah, because because gender swapping is yeah. so out of left field. <laughs> Go back 400 years and Juliet and Cleopatra being played by men in drag. So, you know, this is in the grand tradition of gender swapping in Shakespeare plays. And plus, why can't you just, like, I don't know, shake the cobwebs loose? I mean, it's Shakespeare. It'll always exist. So just do what you want with it. Richard II is usually played as kind of effeminate. And apparently that's generally considered to have been the way he was historically. And this plays into that sort of by casting Fiona Shaw as him. That was kind of the the idea that uh, Deborah Warner had when she got to do her own version of it. She says in an interview that that was always the take was that she was effeminate, uh, that Richard II was effeminate. So she says um, that she was either going to, her being her, she was either going to cast like the most manly John Wayne-esque actor she could possibly think of, or she was just going to cast a woman. And she yeah. went with Fiona Shaw, uh, just to see how that affected the text. And I, I like the idea of taking these texts and performing them in new ways. This sort of reminded me of what Harriet Walters and Phyllida Lloyd have been doing the last few years at the Donmar Theatre. They've done a trilogy of all-female Shakespeare productions, where every part is played by a woman. And they've done Julius Caesar, The Tempest, and Henry the Fourth, all at the Donmar the, Theatre. The Tempest would be excellent. Well, even in the movie, The Tempest got in Helen Mirren yeah. uh, as Prosperous, which is Prospero. Prospero, sorry, which um, technically, you know, originates as as a male part on the stage. So it is interesting to 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 do that kind of a switch, and it particularly creates a, a fascinating take in this one because it uses the gender switch to play on a on this peculiar incestuous dynamic between Richard and Henry. Shaw discusses in an interview the sort of coded intimacy between the two of them. She calls them close to lovers. And Richard as a uh, as a character here just makes out with everyone. Like you get that thing in like old fiction where like the king will, you know, kiss people on the cheek or whatever, but it's but Richard II here, as played by Fiona Shaw, just doesn't. She's just, like, making out with everyone as she goes. Um, and beyond that, though, the, the effect of Shaw's gender is minimal. She fits right in as a self-obsessed king who is fully bought into the whole I was chosen by God kind of uh, concept. Narratively, it's not as complex as a lot of Shakespeare's other stuff. It's it's a pretty simple story that progresses with very few surprises. It, it's very solid thanks to the writing, which gives the actors, uh, principally Shaw, Bremer and Graham Crowden, great stuff to sink their teeth into. But its first half drags a little bit. This production exacerbated the pace problems in the abridging of it. It's three hours in the original play, that's cut down to two here, and it cuts too much from the second half, which leads it 
leaves that bit kind of breathless and disjointed while lingering a little too long on the first half in comparison. It muddies the character motivations for Henry and it kind of stunts Richard's arc and, and cuts out a, a few of the more interesting psychological things. It's a pity because these characters are the best part of the play. It's it's also very dryly staged on the sets as well. It's workmanlike, it's very traditional, and that kind of adds to the lethargy. The whole production has a very uneven energy. It's not the version to watch if you're looking to experience it. The cuts hurt the story, and the excellent central performances aren't enough to counteract all of the humdrum cinematography and staging. The gender thing is interesting, though. Lastly, and most complicatedly this week, I watched The People vs. Larry Flint, which is a biopic directed by Milos Forman, it is the true story of the Hustler magazine founder Larry Flint, played by Woody Harrelson, his marriage to his wife Althea, played by Courtney Love, and the various legal battles he has been involved in. This is a very strong overview of a highly unusual man that might have bitten off more than it can chew. It's a sprawling narrative. It, it takes place over decades, and there are two through lines. There's his marriage, and all of the legal troubles that he got into. It it ignores, by necessity, I would argue, huge swaths of his personal life. His previous marriages and his children are never mentioned. There's just too much to contend with, because the guy, whatever you think of him, has led an absolutely bananas life. <laughs> Flint is a fascinating, complex figure. He's rough and abrasive and impulsive. The movie doesn't exactly sand off all the rough edges, but it seems that he's been polished a little bit, and the movie pretty clearly views him more positively than not. It acknowledges his blunt, tactless manner. There's this way that, like, he, he just wanted Hustler to be the most explicit thing that you could purchase on a newsstand, right? All of the other stuff that was happening at the time, Playboy, Penthouse, they were still being... I, I don't quite know the verbiage of how to put it, but they were still trying to be somewhat classy, I suppose. But Larry Flint just walked in and was like, you know, this is not what the people who are actually buying these magazines want. They don't want to read all these articles about, I don't know, you know, the best tips for sprucing up your car or whatever. They just want to see naked women. And he did incredibly explicit stuff and he was the first to do that kind of stuff. And it might seem kind of tame now with the kind of culture that we live in now and the access that is available for that kind of stuff. But at the time, it was like this huge pearl-clutching thing. He's a PR man, too. Uh, and he he is, he's firmly of the idea that good publicity, that any publicity is good publicity. There's this sequence where a particular a particular state was banning the sale of his magazine and so he went to that state walked into a grocery store paid the owner of the grocery store a thousand dollars to rent the grocery store himself for an hour had all the media there and then sold a copy of hustler magazine to one of his own employees over the counter as a pr stunt so he could get arrested and go to trial <laughs> as a pr stunt um he, he, he seems to have an almost glee in the circus of it all. He loved, loves, I should say, he's still around and he's still doing a lot of this. He loves riling up conservatives and 
in his personal life, there was just this descent into Harwood Hughes level eccentricity of just sort of withdrawing from the world and going kind of wild. Uh, at I, least I'm as this reading movie his Wikipedia it. page right now. And it says, a 2019 Christmas card from Larry Flint Publications sent to several Republican congressmen depicted Trump's assassination. Mm. In the Clinton impeachment scandal, in the Clinton impeachment scandal, he uh, basically put a bounty on Republican congressmen saying that he would pay, I forget what the exact sum was, but he would pay a huge amount of money to anyone who had information about Republican congressmen's extramarital affairs. He actually got the Speaker of the House at the time to resign because... Or, or the guy who was about to be appointed speaker, I can't really recall. Um, but it basically, he, he got that guy and forced him out of Congress as a result. <laughs> like, he, he, he is presented in the movie, and I have no reason to think that this is not also correct in real life, as hating hypocrites, as, mm. as hating the double standard of it all. He has this relationship with his wife, Althea, who is played by Courtney Love, that it's mutually self-destructive. They constantly bicker and she ends up falling into substance abuse and becoming increasingly unstable harrelson and love are both really excellent in this movie i don't have a lot of familiarity with courtney love in any capacity but she's really good in this she was actually nominated for a golden globe and this was at what i suppose you would put her lowest ebb in terms of the culture um they actually couldn't get insurance for her to do the movie they had to put it up themselves because no insurance company would insure her because of all of her personal problems the legal aspect here is the more interesting stuff, though. It covers three court cases. There's the initial um, obscenity trials that he, he was he was actually sent to jail for, which later got overturned, um, and he actually plays Larry Flint, the real Larry Flint, plays the judge that sentenced him to jail in this movie. Um, he had a bizarre involvement in leaking video of John DeLorean being arrested in the FBI sting that then also got him in court to try and... Uh, tell everyone who his source was uh and he made this um and and then there is the the famous jerry falwell supreme court case which basically cemented in american law the first amendment right to offensive speech um he jerry falwell for those of you who don't know is this very he's a televangelist basically he was he was he was a very religious person his son is still continuing that work now but he was very much part of like the Reagan era moral majority kind of thing. And I don't, there's no way to put this delicately. Um, Larry Flint ran a parody article in his magazine implying that he had, that Jerry Falwell had had sex with his mother in an outhouse. <laughs> and Jerry Falwell was displeased by this, as I'm sure yeah, most of us could understand. But he sued him for libel, and the, the the Supreme Court came down on on Larry Flint's case because it's it's pretty clear that that's parody, that that's satire. It was satir- It was one. It was satirizing an ad that was very popular in regular mar- magazines at the time. It was satirizing Jerry Falwell's image as a public leader. Like there are a lot of reasons why no one would have taken it seriously, including the little asterisks at the bottom. This is parody, not a real thing. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, you, it's actually very, very hard to prove libel in yeah. court, uh, and that decision is one of the reasons. That's 
it's like his. It's an American case and it's American standard, but it can still be cited in Australian law, I believe, yeah. uh, because there are certain similar cases. Yeah, he, Falwell was a te- Southern Baptist pastor, televangelist, and conservative activist. I want to read to you a funny thing about him. In 1999, Falwell declared that the Antichrist would probably arrive within a decade, and, I quote, of course he'll be Jewish. (laughs) Jesus. After accusations of anti-Semitism, Falwell apologized and explained he was simply expressing the theological tenet that the Antichrist and Christ share many attributes. I mean... No, because that's not what the Antichrist is, Jerry. Um, <laughs> Jerry, you watch The Omen <laughs> too many times. I will say that it is kind of interesting to have found out after after watching this movie that Jerry Falwell and Larry Flint bizarrely became friends after this movie came out. Like, they both agreed to do a series of public debates at different universities over the merits of the case that they were involved in. And over that period of time, they became, Larry Flint's own words, they became friends. And they would even, like, send each other Christmas cards and things up until Jerry Falwell's death. So that's a strange little post-text to all of that. But anyways, Larry Flint's behaviour, especially in these legal cases, it elevate. it was trying to make a farce of it. It was trying to make a farce of the whole thing, make fun of what was happening. I mean, he's he's making this very intense argument for free speech and that you don't have to like what he does but you have to respect the fact that he's able to do it but then as it develops and as he sort of goes more off the rails in his personal life he starts to get more and more absurd in what he's doing in the courtroom he wore a diaper made out of an american flag to one of his court appearances that's not when good he optics. was when he was being sued by Jerry Falwell and was on the stand being interrogated by Falwell's lawyer, he continuously referred to him as Jerry Fartwell. He he just turned the whole thing into a show. Jerry Fartwell. It's just such an immature... Yeah. Like, he was an immature man. It's, Larry like, Flint is an immature man. It's immature and really petty. Yeah. And I imagine the judge would have been like, Dude, just stop. stop. But he's, he's like, like... I'm not even going to charge know, you with contempt. Just kind of just don't. But he's like sitting there going, Jerry Fartwell's a hypocrite. And then the lawyer's like, Jerry Falwell. And he's like, Jerry Fartwell, yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> like, it's... <laughs> it's absurd. You can tell the, that the bailiff is probably like, oh, Jesus, fuck. The, oh, the stenographer is losing their mind. The mo- and, and he's... The, the discussion of Hustler's impact and propriety is some of the movie's best stuff. Uh, it does, it skates over some of the much more unfortunate aspects of what that magazine apparently did uh, back in the day. Lots of violent imagery and things that we would find very much unacceptable uh, now, even perhaps more so than at the time. But that stuff is all sort of ignored in favour of stuff that can just sort of be interpreted as gags like a bawdy cartoon of the characters from Wizard of Oz that they can have people get up in arms about and kind of ignores some of the the worst bits of what he was doing. But it's in this way that they kind of clean Flint up a little bit and clean Hustler up a little bit um, in a way that kind of muddies my feelings about the movie. 
It's still a fascinating discussion of how much this sort of thing was being argued about. He was shot. Larry Flint was shot. Um, Walking out of court one day, he was permanently paralyzed from the waist down. This was a huge cultural issue that was going on at the time. And I, I only wish it would have had more time to properly explore those ideas. Flint's opponents, both within Hustler and without, are portrayed with this very sarcastic wit. It, the movie definitely rolls its eyes at all of the, the pearl clutching. Jerry Falwell is presented as a pompous twit. Um, it also takes the opportunity to just sort of shake its head at some of the more juvenile Hustler elements. There was a kind of infamous cartoon that was brought up in the first trial um, of Santa Claus holding his... Uh, uh, his candy stick, I suppose. <laughs> and uh, the caption read, it was presenting himself to Mrs. Claus, and the caption read, uh, this is what I'm ho-ho-hoing about. And so it's brought up in the first trial, and, you know, the, the lawyer the, the lawyer that's trying to prosecute him for obscenity is saying, like, um, Hustler Magazine presents men and women in lewd situations. Um, Hustler Magazine really? presents... Really? Stop the press! Hustler Magazine presents women and women in lewd situations. Hustler Magazine presents Santa Claus in lewd situations. And at that point, um, his lawyer, Larry Flint's lawyer, played by Edward Norton, sort of leans over and says, what is he talking about? And Larry Flint whispers in his ear. And he's always like, Jesus Christ, Larry. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it has that kind of wit I can almost it. hear Edward Norton saying that. There's a strong vein of humour. I love the idea that somewhere in the North Pole, this gets back to Santa. He spits out his eggnog and he's like, he said what? If there's one major failing in this movie, it's that I never understood him. I never fully knew what he believed or how genuine he was at any given moment. Things just move so quickly and the circus is so all-encompassing that it becomes hard to tell what he, what is his actual value system. What does he actually believe? If I all of the stuff outside of the movie that I've gone and read about him in the aftermath of watching this movie, it would appear that he's actually a very genuine about the idea of free speech. Mm. But the movie itself, I was never quite sure while watching it. The movie yeah. never got into this guy's head. Things just move too quickly. He was born again Christian for a year and like tried to turn Hustler into a religious pornographic magazine with all of this religious imagery and like naked women on crosses and things like it was bizarre and they've got to like they they zoom over all of this stuff so quickly they don't even address the fact that he ran for president as a Uh, republican as a republican they're making a documentary about that now i think it's called larry flint for president but that was just basically a whole... That was just another aspect of the circus. He said later on that it was just a joke. And then a whole bunch of people started donating to his campaign. So he decided to actually run a campaign. Like, it's this all of this bizarre stuff that the movie is trying to contend with in a 140-minute movie. The guy who shot him was a white supremacist who is known by the other name of the racist killer. And this guy tried to start a race war. Like, yeah. You can't sum up all of this shit he, in that short of time. He tried to kill Larry Flint because there were uh, interracial pictures in the Hustler magazine. That was his... That's what he was up in arms about. It wasn't... He wasn't, you know, any of the, like, the, the conservative religious people that did it. It was this... I think he was... Oh, yeah. It was just a, this racist guy. Um, 
the emotional connection between him and Althea also remains frustratingly obtuse. This is just ultimately a fascinating film with lots to think about, and it's very entertaining to boot as well, but it holds back on some of the more troubling parts of Hustler's output. And the sheer volume of things that this movie is trying to deal with. I mean, the fact that this, that me talking about it has been as disjointed as it is, um, you know, there's just so much stuff here. There's so much stuff to unpack, and it's so complicated as well to really talk about. And the movie just, by necessity, is forced to skim over a lot of compelling stuff. And it does, of course, also do that thing where it kind of polishes his image in a way that I, yeah. I'm not sure I'm that comfortable with, um, given what I've read about him after watching the film. I would really love, I know I, I, I bring up, you know, this would work better as a miniseries. I know I do that every now and again, but this seems <laughs> one of the things... Every now and again, almost every episode... <laughs> Well, yeah, because so many of these things would. This um, this movie this movie would work so much better as a miniseries where you could actually do the whole thing of his life. You could talk about his previous marriages. You could talk about, you know, his involvement in the Clinton impeachment. You've got all of this stuff that would make for a really valuable, long-form discussion of this guy and who he is, what he did, and what he represents. Make it warts and all, you know? Yeah. Um, but this movie is a very compelling um, film in and of itself. And it's, it's available for streaming on Foxtel now and Binge, if anyone is interested. Now that I have spent an hour discussing this, because you guys kept interrupting me over and over and over again, um, what have you been watching this week? Okay, so we've really only got two things. Um, so we'll keep it short. I sat down with my sister and watched a film called Eerie. It's a Filipino horror movie starring B. Alonzo. When a student's suicide rattles an all-girls Catholic school, a clairvoyant guidance counsellor leans on a ghost to uncover the convent's abusive past. Now, I didn't see all of this movie because I was going back and forth. Um, But what I saw, this was a very taut, very simple horror movie with some very interesting elements it has a fantastic has a fantastic style like it's it has the feeling of one of those junji ito horror novels where you're seeing sort of banal situations be turned into horror it has a very good message about not mistreating people about not bullying them to the point where they see no other response but to lash out with violence. And it doesn't... The movie does the ballsy thing of not ending on a positive note. Like, someone who's been oppressed by this ghost has murdered a young girl, and there is no way of helping this man, who is, by all intents and purposes, not a murderer. But... There's no legal way to get him out of this. The yeah, the movie doesn't end positively, but it there are glimmers of hope for the future that this cycle of violence can be stopped. Yeah, and it's very well put together, very well acted. The little girl who plays the ghost does a very very good job at playing along with the Innocence when she was alive, but also the viciousness now that she's an evil ghost going and killing people. So it's very well put together. 
as we talked about earlier, we also watched a film that I've been looking for for years, ever since I started hearing some of the music from it, and that I got from you about, I don't know, a year ago? <laughs> and I haven't got around to watching? Oh, uh, 10, 11 months ago, yeah. 10, 11 Babies months, have yeah. been conceived and born in the time that you've had that movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's by Donald Camel, and it's called White of the Eye. Now... I want to tell you a little little story, little story, about how this movie sort of came across my desk, so to speak. I'm a massive Pink Floyd fan. I make no bones about that. Uh, it's a hill I'll die on, I don't, though no one's going to storm it at, by any means. And I have been obsessed with finding works of art that even have something tangentially to do with the band. I don't wa- I don't know why you say obsessed as if it's a question. It's more of a statement. Yeah. Because I'm a weirdo, I get hyper focused onto topics, but you know. Um so the music for White of the Eye was done by Nick Mason, who is the drummer from Pink Floyd, and Rick Fenn who is the guitar player for a classic rock band called 10CC. And a long-time collaborator of his. And long-time collaborator. They've done work together before. Like, they did a few... Actually, yeah, you know what, yeah. Long-time collaborator. They've worked on a few projects together, including an album, which is called Profiles. It's very good. Harley and I have created our narrative for the album because it's an instrumental album and sounds like a cop movie. But anyway... White of the Eye follows a wealthy and isolated desert community and a series of brutal murders that occur. Can I just quickly ask, did you watch this too, Harley? Yes. Yes. It's... This movie is a mess. It's so... It's so messy messy. and disjointed. The narrative is all over the place. It's held down by a couple of decent performances, like David Keith as the main character, Paul White... He is able to switch on a dime, and whenever he's given the chance to monologue or really dig into the weeds of his character, the movie picks up and is able to actually fit the tone that the script and the film and the cinematography and, dare I say, even the music give it. It's a very sort of art house, but also trying to almost go center of the road kind of horror movie or serial killer film the narrative is just jumbled there are flashbacks and they're not really explained it's two different different movies movies. yeah one of them is a kind of a dull procedural and the other is a lunatic fever dream yeah yeah and the lunatic fever dream aspect is the more interesting aspect because you're getting all of this interesting stuff about the killer's M.O., you're getting this very broken, busted individual's philosophy on life and all of the things around it. And it seems like that's the stuff that Donald Camel is interested in. He was a kind of weird individual. Aside from that, he sadly committed suicide. And it seems like that's where a lot of his interest lied. His interest lied in the psychological nature of this character. But it's sort of held together with the flimsiest of 
tethers, I guess you could say. Uh, I think the editors did a terrible job. Mm. Uh, <laughs> the for the long for pretty much most of the entire thing up till it was explained to me by John, I thought that because we get two narratives, right? Yeah. We get uh, the narrative of this this fellow and his girlfriend. How Joan met Paul. Popping into town on their way to LA, was it? Yeah. Uh, I was entirely convinced that that was running concurrently with the rest of the film. No, it's a flashback? Yeah. <laughs> they had to make that more clear. It was not explained properly. It's like, and that's the fault of the editors. It wasn't made distinct or obvious well, the flashback scenes are apparently more washed out in terms the of the footage. The entire thing <laughs> is washed out. Yeah. I, I, they, they have to make it a little more obvious. There's, you know the over, overuse of the like harp trilling to symbolize, like, I'm remembering. <laughs> Maybe that would have been helpful. Something, something I can anchor to. A change in the music, maybe. Like, <laughs> I, I like the music. <laughs> The music is good. There's a few really good tracks on it's it. Like, uh, they use some licensed music in it too. Yeah. To pretty good effect. But ultimately, it's just a mess. Yeah. It picks up right near the end. Plus, this is amazing practical explosion. Oh, yeah. Which I love. That loved. explosion at the end. Mm, chef kiss. That well was some done. good shit. But it was just a total mess. Yeah. I feel like this narrative would work better if you got someone to do a remake of it. If you took the narrative, but you put it together differently. Yeah. With, I guess, a better style. Because this is a scan and remaster of a film that was not very well liked or very well put around, it has sort of suffered in terms of age. You can tell that the negatives haven't been treated quite as well as they maybe should have been. Just for, you know, artistic, you know, keeping artistic merit. Um, but yeah, to me, the the two leads look like a, a discount Patrick Swayze... Uh, discount Uma Thurman. Yeah, and discount Uma Thurman. We got into a whole thing about David Keith, about how if he looks as if... Well, the first thing you said was if Liev Schreiber and... What, what, who was it? No, no, no. Uh, it was Patrick Swayze and Kurt Russell uh, did the fusion dance from Dragon Ball Z and were trained by Liev Schreiber. Anyway, it's a jumbled mess. The music's good, though. Yeah. They've released the, the music as an album, which mm. I was happy about because really the only other type way I could listen to that music was bootlegs of audio from the actual film itself. So I've basically got a lot of the audio from the movie on my iTunes in the form of a bootleg, just so I could hear the music. So, mm. I had I guess, like at least listened to the movie and it was it was just as messy as actually watching it. Mm. Uh, so that's what we've seen within the week. It's a short one this time. <laughs> Uh, but here is the uh, theatrical trailer for Romeo Plus Juliet. Did my heart love till now? 
I never saw true beauty till this night. Seen two households, both alike in dignity. Throw your mischievous weapons to the ground! From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. Who is it that you love? Gentle Romeo, of thou dost love, pronounce faithfully. My heart's dear love is set on the fair daughter of rich Capulet. My only love sprung from my only hate. Romeo is Venice! Maybe they will murder me. Let them find me here. Claire Danes in William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Good night. Good night. That was the theatrical trailer for Romeo plus Juliet. It is a romantic tragedy directed by Baz Luhrmann based on the Shakespeare play of this, well, not the same name, Shakespeare play Romeo and Juliet. But this version has been radically modernised into present-day California. Uh, The Montagues and Capulets are two feuding wealthy families in the gang-strewn dystopia of Verona Beach. Romeo Montague, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, meets Juliet Capulet, played by Claire Danes, and the pair fall in love with tragic consequences. So why don't we just start off by going around and saying what we each thought of this, just briefly. What did you start us off, Sean? What do you think of Romeo plus Juliet? I love this movie. I love its style. I love the acting choices. I love the costuming. I love the way that Baz Luhrmann understands this story. He He's able to dig deep into the themes and who the characters are and what their archetypes are in order to make this film work as well as it does. I love the music in this film too. The soundtrack is absolutely fantastic. And I think the cast was very well, very well picked. They all handled the dialogue, which is all the Shakespearean dialogue for the most part. They all handle it very well. And... I just can't sing this movie's praises high enough. I, I, it is up there as one of my favorite movies. It's in my top ten. Uh, I, I agree with everything you said there. Plus, I really like the modernization. Yeah, Mo- the modernized elements. Uh, the guns being swords and daggers and, and daggers swords. and long swords. It's just, it's not smart. It's not that clever, but it's neat. Uh, <laughs> uh, I love the style of the movie, just the sheer frantic nature of it. It's probably one of the least dry Shakespeare adaptations I've ever watched. And I love Shakespeare adaptations. Yeah. 
but this is the most dynamic that I've seen. Uh, it's just great. I I think this is just such a wild reimagining that really blends the tone and the tenor of the late nineties while retaining the language and more importantly the spirit of the play. I just love this movie. Um, some people will hate it. Some people do hate it. Say yeah. that it's garish, but it clicks for me in every way, shape, and form. It's it's a blend of just incredible craftsmanship and a really timeless story, and it presses all of the right buttons for me. Um, I suppose, I'm not sure we need to talk about in, in any detail the actual plot outline of what this movie is. I think People it's know. Romeo and Juliet. Everyone everyone knows Romeo and Juliet. It's it's like, one of, if not the absolute best love story ever. You know, what like, more do you want from us? Like, even if you haven't seen a Romeo and Juliet, you you've, know probably seen, you've probably seen Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> Let's be fair. Or... <laughs> Or barring that, you've listened to the song Love Story by Taylor Swift. It, it's just one of those stories that through cultural osmosis... You know it. You know the ending. It, it gets me right at the core. Like, I am I talk about a lot of, like, violent movies on this podcast that I watch, but I am a sucker for a romance. And yeah. this always hits me every time I see it. Um, any version of Romeo and Juliet, you know, I'm always some illogical part of me just right at the back of my mind is just really hoping that this time it might work out for those crazy kids, Mm. but it it never does. Exactly the same. It, this time in particular, I was just sitting there just going, just, just wait a little bit, dude. Just wait till you get the letter. No, I was just sitting there like, yeah, they emphasize that in this as well like Mm. they have all of the missed opportunities and close calls that could have prevented this and they just emphasize it over and over and over like they have juliet waking up and stirring before he takes the poison but he doesn't notice they have him literally just behind the the trailer when the uh letters being tried to be delivered yeah you know this is my argument for why signature postage isn't always the best idea. Uh, <laughs> someone I, maybe I, should I have given him a someone, phone call. Just leave it in my mailbox. It's fine. Um, but uh, the the modernization of it is. I mean, that's what makes it stand out. Really, um, yeah. it's what it is. I think the still the highest grossing Shakespeare adaptation ever. How would made be surprised? Like, it made like a hundred and fifty million dollars in nineteen ninety six money. Which you know that's that's huge for a Shakespeare adaptation. Um, like it or not, people don't go and see them anymore, really, in movies. Mm. And if you actually like, we will have chosen a trailer for this movie that has you know dialogue in it because otherwise, what's the point of playing audio from the trailer? <laughs> but the the most um, obvious trailer, uh, the one that was everywhere had very little dialogue. I think the only the only dialogue that it had was one that wasn't really lines that weren't really Shakespearean in like they didn't sound like Shakespeare, you know? Like I defy you stars, things like that. I think that yeah. turned up in one trailer. But for the most part it was like one or two lines and it was just, you know, mu- music being played over like title cards of like the love's greatest love story ever told blah 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 yeah. blah blah. It's almost like they were trying to trick teenagers into thinking <laughs> that it wasn't going to have Shakespeare dialogue. No, but like 
now's now's a good time to talk about Shakespeare dialogue. Mm. Uh, a lot of people have trouble with Shakespeare dialogue, and I've I've and I did as a child. I feel that it comes to ma- mainly reading it. Yes. Uh, it, it it can be very overwhelming. It's very very wordy. The but... worst mistake that every high school in the Western world makes teaching Shakespeare is that they give you the script and don't show you the play. Exactly. It's, you need to hear it spoken and performed. Yeah, if you exactly. were studying, like we're in film class, right? We're studying film. If if you're trying to teach us, you know, I don't know, Star Wars, you wouldn't give us the script. You'd show us the no. movie. Exactly. Like, it. Shakespeare must be heard. Yeah. And, and every time I hear of, like... I have younger family members who are studying studying Shakespeare, and I told them you have to watch Shakespeare because that's the only way you'll understand. Because Shakespeare's not talking in a completely different language to us in the modern world. He just takes a bit longer to get to the point. And you know, it's the same. It's so much less effort too, just sitting yeah. down and watching it than it is reading exactly. it. Like, um, I studied. I did. I did a semester on Shakespeare last year at university for uh, one of my majors, and I ended up just watching all of the plays that we studied instead of reading the the script. Because and I think I got so much more out of it doing that. It's it has a kind of lyrical quality to it. It has a yeah. a poetic quality to it, where even if you don't necessarily understand what they're talking about in specific lines. You get the emotion of it, and you get the you get the flavor of it, because mm. um, yeah. there are a few things like um, "Oh Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo?" I mean, to our modern ears, that reads to us as uh, "Where are you, Romeo?" But yeah. that's not what that means. It's "Why are you, Romeo? Why are you uh, a Montague?" That's what that yeah. line is, and it's that doesn't matter. Where mean... for art thou, Romeo? Yeah. So. Um, like you, you do get situations like that where the yeah, the course. meaning of the text is kind of obtuse to modern modern ears, yeah. but when you hear it performed and see it performed, you understand it nonetheless. Yeah, and I can't really think of another example of something like that where just the the atmosphere that the words themselves create are just as illuminating as the actual script. You know, the actual content of the words. Mm. Yeah, and for me. It's not Shakespeare dialogue. I know that this might be because Holly and I are very good at English comprehension. It might not sound it, but... <laughs> we also have know, the training. We And we have the training, but it's but, never Because you guys really... would have looked at some of this in your drama courses, right? Of course. Oh, yeah. Of I, course. I've done... I've performed two monologues from Hamlet. One in high school, one in my drama course. I prefer the university mm. monologue I did because it's one of the less uh, obvious ones. Uh, but it's really digging into... Because Shakespeare was very precise yeah, with what he wrote. And you've got to give it that little bit of extra thought. There's trouble in the translation, of course, because some things were prominent terms of phrases back then that are not the case now. There will always be that issue with translation. Yeah, and for me, Shakespeare's dialogue just washes over me. I I just, I don't know, intrinsically understand what he's saying. 
Like, it's not... to It's, to me, not that difficult. Mm. And yeah. I think the actors in particular in this movie treat the dialogue as if it was just any other dialogue from a movie. Oh, if th- you notice, the only person who speaks in Iron Book Pentameter, which is the Postles way that... White. Yeah, is, yeah. is Pete Postlethwaite as Father Prior Lawrence. And... Who, interestingly, I think is one of the two best performances in the movie, and I wonder oh, if that oh, has any 100%. Fire Lawrence is one of the best characters Shakespeare ever wrote. I would love <laughs> to play Fire Lawrence. He's just. He has so the cool. best lines. He has the best the, lines. Uh, so love moderate, long lost dozo, for too quick arrives as tardy as too slow. Then there's the, also the. Uh, they stumble that run fast. They stumble that run fast. Yeah, it's always the clergy that suggests the uh, the faking the death plan in the Shakespeare stories too. <laughs> it it's is always know, the clergy. Right? Yeah. It's like it worked once back in the Roman days, so we'll do it again now, and hopefully it'll work again. We're going to bring out our little special secret technique. <laughs> Yikes! Um, but yeah, the act is. You can tell that they sat down and were told, okay, here's the meaning of what you're saying. Just say it like you would be saying anything else. The, the, I bite my thumb at you, sir. I love the, the sort of tit for tat of that. Do you bite your thumb at us, sir? Sir. I bite my thumb at a do not bite my thumb at you, sir. Yeah, I'm going to disagree with you just a little bit because I think that most of the cast does do really well with the dialogue, but I think that there are quite a few of the the younger set that are having trouble, that they're sort of tripping over their own tongues in some places. And I actually think DiCaprio is one of those people. Um, I think that DiCaprio really sells the emotion and the charisma of Romeo, but I think the actual practice of saying some of the lines, I can... I can kind of see him chewing the dialogue, you know? I can kind of see him trying to make it manageable. Uh, and it, there are points where it doesn't seem natural. And John Leguizamo is an actor that I am not the hugest of fans of. Um, really? But, yeah, he. I, I think it's just, to be fair to him, I do think it is the kind of characters that he has gotten typecast as. Is I, it also the Sid the Sloth of it? <laughs> I, I have not seen Ice Age in many years, so I can't really say if, if that's... Maybe it's some sort of, uh, you know, deeply embedded psychological trigger that when I hear his voice... You just um, imagine it, Sid the Sloth. It flashes me back to Ice Age. But, um, no, I, I, I think to be totally fair to him, it's, it's the kind of... And he is a good actor. He's a very good actor. But I think it's the kind of characters that he was, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, um, sort of typecast into playing. He he often played aggressive characters or annoying characters, yeah. and uh, he does that here as well. He plays a very aggressive kind of smarmy character, um, and it it's I, this is all a roundabout way to getting the point. I think there are times where you can hear him struggle as well. I think there are times when uh, you know Romeo's mates you know his the, the crew of meatheads that follow him around the place the boys the boys including jamie kennedy bizarrely um yeah. i mean uh, interesting choice those I'm are sure. the those are the culprits for me that the ones that are having the most trouble there and i do wonder if um also if that might partially be because of 
you know, they're trying to marry the text at that moment into a very modern kind of uh, social dynamic of sort of like these mm. these young, um, very loud, kind of annoying band of youths that wander the beaches and harass people. Like, it's a very specific modern type that they're trying to marry all of this very sort of archaic, um, elegant dialogue to, and I'm not sure that they all manage it. I think the closest... I would like to talk about Harold Perrineau's performance as Mercutio. Oh, oh yeah, I love it. I, I can't decide whether I loved it or hated it it's like it's a very strange thing i can't quite decide where i land on it because there are some scenes where i'm like oh that's brilliant and there are other scenes where he's just sort of playing a cartoon character but at the same time it's so in keeping with the nature of what baz Luhrmann is doing filmically Mm. it's it's a very strange performance i think i would argue that it's it's the film's most out there performance yeah yeah and yeah, it's it's a it's a very odd take, and it's a it's a yeah. difficult character to start off with because of his um is it Lady Mab is is the yeah. the monologue Queen that he gets Mab where he monologue. is he is supposed to kind of lose control of himself yeah. in that mm. monologue in a way that is not really contextualized that well in like it, like he's not contextualized as a character as an unstable person you know but he is supposed to become unstable in that moment I think. A lot of the versions of this that I've seen, the actor playing Mercutio tends to struggle to reconcile that particular monologue with the rest of their performance. And I think that Harold Perrineau actually does it better than most, but he does it by heightening the rest of his performance to the same level as his Queen Mab monologue. And I see Queen Mab has been with you. She is the fairy's midwife, and she comes in shape no bigger than an agate stone. On the forefinger... Of an alderman, drawn with a team of little atomies over men's noses as they lie asleep. Her chariot is an empty hazelnut. Her wagoner a small, grey-coated gnat. And in this state, she gallops <laughs> night by night through lovers' brains. And then they dream of love. Or lawyer's fingers who straight dream on feet. Sometimes she driveth o'er a soldier's neck And then dreams he Of cutting foreign throats And being thus frighted Swears a prayer or two and sleeps again This is the hag When maids lie on their backs That presses them And learns them face to bear Making them women Of good courage This is she Talk of dreams. The way that I see Mukushio in this film in particular is he's a character caught between things. He's neither a Montague or a Capulet, and this is shown by he's po- somewhere between sanity and insanity. He's somewhere between man and woman. He's somewhere between these two families. 
and he's he's kin to the Capulets. He's kin to the Capulets, but, but he aligns himself with the Montagues. With the Montagues, he, he's related to the prince. The prince as well. He he he's does have one of the between. most like indelible images of this movie is because he's kind of he's a drag queen in this movie. Yeah. Um, but him dancing to uh, Young Hearts Run Free mm. uh, in a choreographed musical number in the middle of this party. I mean, that's one of the, like, whoa moments of this, this whole movie, just because of and the audacity brilliant. of it. A lot of the, the use of modern music, it, it adds to the, the movie's atmosphere in such a fascinating way. I mean, the guts of playing Love Fool over a you know, a, a pretty serious scene in, in Shakespeare or um, what else do they, they, they do there? Um, I, yeah, When Doves Fly, when they, when they do that. When Doves Cry. When Doves Cry, sorry. That's autocorrect. But um, oh. it's it's such a fascinating staging. And to hear Baz Luhrmann tell that it's driven by his whole approach to um, to this movie was that he looked at, what Shakespeare was doing. And he was like, at the time that this stuff came out in the 1500s and the 1600s, at the time that this was actually staged for the first time, it was incredibly uh, pop. It was very popular, popular culture, pop music, pop culture, because he was taking, you know, songs that people would, you know, sing in the streets and he was putting it in there. And he was, he was, you know, doing all of these, bawdy storylines with you know blood and death and sex and you know betrayal and war and all this stuff and and this is not shakespeare gets a reputation now for being sort of hoity-toity it's not remotely hoity-toity no absolutely not people people are getting killed left and right in these in these stories you know people are you know having sex with each other and you know running off and you know going to war and betraying each other and there's titus there's titus andronicus Where a dude literally makes people into pies. Yeah. Yeah. So Baz Luhrmann sort of, what he tried to do with this, to hear him tell it, is to try and shake off that modern interpretation of Shakespeare as being this sort of stuffy, very cloistered sort of um, version of it and go back to what he felt Shakespeare was actually doing in the original thing, which was he was trying to make mass appeal entertainment using everything that was available to him, using pop music, popular music at the time, using, um, you know, all of the, the, you know, gimmicks and techniques on the stage that he could find. And he tried to do that in this film, just in a modern context. So I, I actually think that that's kind of an admirable idea. And I Absolutely. would I would not be at all opposed to seeing Baz Luhrmann do another Shakespeare movie. Yeah. Which one would you like to see oh. him do? Because there's a lot of good ones to choose from. Personally, I'm leading to Twelfth Night. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that, yeah. Yeah. Much Ado About Nothing. I, I think I'd want to see him do one of the comedies. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't know, he's got a way with tragedy. He's got he a does. way with tragedy. Like, if you look at this... Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge. Gatsby. Gatsby he... Australia was a tragedy. <laughs> Travis, give him, but, give him a few more decades. I would like to see like a a, a seventy year old Lerman do like a Lear. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to see what, and I, I say leave it leave it a few decades because I would like to see um, what his interpreter because so much of what he does is always personal. Oh yeah, you know? definitely. It's it's 
Baz Luhrmann is one of the very few directors that you can look at any movie that he's made, never having seen it before, never having heard anything of it before, and you're like, yeah, Baz Luhrmann directed that. Because he brings so much of himself to everything. And you can see in the movies that he does, and he only does a few movies every now and again. He's, He's done what? Strictly Ballroom, this, Moulin Rouge, Australia, and Gatsby. Has he done anything else? Uh, he's currently making well, well yeah, not he's, currently he's, he's because ma- of he's, he's making that but... that Elvis one. Yeah. But even that, that's going to come out eight years after Gatsby did, and yeah. Gatsby came out six years after Australia, and Australia came out yeah. five years after um, Moulin Rouge, which came out five years after this. So he's getting yeah. he he takes long gaps. He he waits for the project that connects to him, and then he like I, I don't know, it's, it's just pours all of his personality into yeah. it um mm. and i think that's why ounce of his energy into these pieces yeah. which is why which is why i think i would like to see what like a 70 75 year old mm. baz lerman mm. as an older man having that context what he would I, make of king lear i think a titus Andronicus stunned by him would be wild because that's probably one of the more debauched i've got it midsummer night's dream Mm. Yeah, that's that's very that's basically much a sex the... romp through the magical forest. Yeah, like that's Baz Luhrmann right there. Yeah, um, but there's such a style to this movie. Yeah, I my mean, wow, probably my favorite use of well, it's two really. My favorite two uses of licensed music is one at the ending credit, the end credits, exit with song exit, for a film. exit exit music for exit, a film, yeah. exit music for a film by Radiohead. Yeah. Uh, which, which is, is written, excellent. Written for yeah. the movie. Yeah. Uh, and then there's uh, the use of the song Kissing You by Desiree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the which scene is, where they first encounter one another. Which, which is the movie's uh, most iconic moment. Yeah. It's a great choice of music because you'd expect the song playing when they meet to be this youthful... Uh, upbeat, and, happy thing, and and but, even if it's slow, you expect something yeah. happy. But but this is a tragic, tragic song. It's a tragic song. It feels like deep sadness and longing. Good watching stars without you, my soul song about someone calling out to someone that they've lost yeah and and there's that that piano motif that plays in the part of the song where they get in the elevator and they're kissing in the elevator there's the piano motif that then in the instrumental score is taken and placed in for the rest of the rest of the movie and they're actually they're using a lot of the motifs from the licensed music in the score the same is done in Gatsby yeah, and it and it becomes a thing where it's introduced in the original piece of licensed music, mm. and then it becomes a part of the score going forward after that. Yeah, it's a very it's, interesting uh, 
approach. And the score for this was done by Craig Armstrong. Very well who done. Who works a lot with Baz Luhrmann. Yeah, and... Uh, well, it was, that- like, also Marius DeVries and Nellie Hooper were, like, instrumental in this because they weren't necessarily even, um, you know, composer people. They were people that were brought in to... From the, um, from the music world. They yeah. were producers and, you know, the kind of people that mix things, you know. So they were brought in to, to, to make this very unusual and interesting blend of, uh, of licensed music and original music. Where are, you, where are you getting the Craig Armstrong credit for, John? Because he's not credited on IMDb for it. Are you sure? He's, oh, he might be. I'm, I don't know where he's... He's on the soundtrack, but he's not credited as the composer. Check his Wikipedia. He, uh, IMDb says that he is the writer and arranger of a single piece of music, slow movement. Right. Okay. Right. Um, the yep. composers, the credited composers, are uh, the people I mentioned: Nelly Hooper and Marius Devries, who came from the um, the the soundtrack world, the the contemporary music world. Yeah. Uh, and it, it it is such a unique sound to hear it. Yeah. And it's implemented um, in the music in a, such an interesting way. And in this uh, this scene where they first meet a particular, it it's it introduces that motif of water. Uh, with the fish tank separating mm, yeah. the two. And one of the amusing little touches is there's a dude just in like old time stuff. <laughs> Taking a person in the background. <laughs> yeah. Which is just frankly amusing. Uh but the water and the fish tank distort their initial impression of each other. So the first time they see each other, they're seeing everything like, like amplified. Amplified. They're seeing every sort of line on each other's face because of the magnifying effect of the fish Can tank. Can I just quickly put in a bit of context here? Is that, uh, And I think this is actually kind of a, a really fascinating architectural touch, is that the fish tank is bridging the men and women's bathroom. So... Yeah. Um, at the at the part with all the sinks, you can't actually see into any of the you know toilets or anything, but you can see through the fish tank into the sink section of the other bathroom. I just thought that might be worth adding context because uh, otherwise, all listeners who haven't seen the movie got was um, that they were looking through a fish tank at each other while the guy pissed in the background. <laughs> so, okay, yeah, fair enough. Um... <laughs> That's fair enough. That's a fair call. And like the process that they went through to actually be able to film that scene was incredible. Hmm. So much effort came into being able to actually track the camera through the walls, essentially, in order to get this very sweeping piece of filmmaking. Yeah, and one of the most complicated things you can do is shoot with a reflect with reflective services, yeah. and they managed to make it work. I'm always impressed by how people manage to make that yeah. work. Because it's so easy to cock it up. Mm. It's so easy. The, I love the whole party scene itself. Like, all of these characters are wearing costumes that tell you something about those characters. Uh, Juliet's father is just like a Roman emperor because he is boisterous, rowdy. He just wants a party. He wants success. He wants prestige. Paris, Dave Paris, played by Paul, Paul Rudd, Rudd, who... God bless you, Paul Rudd. You don't age, and I'm so happy Paris doesn't die in the end of this version. Um, he's just like an. I've astronaut. never liked that, by the way. I've never liked that that 
And it's not necessarily that I'm a big, you know, Paris stan or anything like that. No. It's it's the fact that it kind of just interrupts the yeah the finale. Yeah, exactly. It breaks pace. Yeah, but Paris is dressed like an astronaut because, like, the point of his character is he's above everything. He's not involved. He, he's not involved in all of the things happening down on Earth. He's completely outside of it, and he. There were even little moments... He's out of his depth. ...where he's completely out of his depth. He doesn't understand. And Paul Rudd... Lo- Paul Rudd lo- almost looks yeah. exactly yeah. like he does yeah. now. Juliet's mother is dressed like Cleopatra. Not only does this fit with the, you know, relationship she has with her husband, who's dressed like a Roman, knowing all of the things happened that happened with Rome and Egypt, but... She wants opulence. She wants to be seen as one of the incredible beauties of history. Romeo is just like a knight, a gallant protector, who is so entrenched in, entrenched in the idea of chivalry and the pursuit of beauty that he can't see that he's putting himself in danger because he's just stuck in this idea of going out and being brave. Juliet is dressed like an angel because that is kind of what she represents There's a purity. in the story. She represents a purity. But much like the idea of angels, she is this unreachable thing that the attempt to try and reach this symbol of purity kills you in the end. We've already talked about Mercutio. He's a character caught between poles. He's... Caught between sanity and insanity, between man and woman, between these families. Tybalt, he's dressed like the devil. Because mm. that is the role that this movie and this play puts him in. He he also wants to feel like he's this powerful being. He wants to have this kind of a demon-like control over people. And it's just such an intricate, well-put-together way of just saying oh that's the archetype of this character that's the archetype of this character it's just so well put together Mm. um one of the like we touched on earlier one of the main things in shakespearean tragedies is misunderstanding yeah and the lack of information Mm. received (laughs) um it's portrayed so well with the the uh, friar lawrence being like huh I don't think he's gotten my letter. I'll send another letter. <laughs> uh, but that's just for the characters. Yeah. In in a lot of Shakespeare plays, particularly as tragedies, he tells us from the top yeah. what we're getting. We know. It's like if you knew nothing about Romeo and Juliet, which is next to impossible uh, from a Western perspective. But, but sure, let's go. But sure, let's go with that. He tells you they die at the start. Yeah. And Baz Luhrmann, very smartly... Repeats it. Repeats that opening monologue twice. First, in the style of a newscast. Which, which is brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, it Both in terms of just the intelligent choice, but also the it's, line, de- the line delivery. Yeah. It's such a smart way to integrate the chorus into a modern context. Two households. Both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. 
From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end naught could remove, is now the two hours traffic of our stage. Yeah, and then he does the big bombastic. Yeah. Showing you bits from the movie. Showing you moments from the film. We are meant to know. Doing those introductory, like, little, this is who this person is. These little, this little roll call of the main characters. Mm. Like, and that use of the newscaster as, that use of the newscaster as the chorus also pays off so well at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you, you cut back to it for the exit and you, um, you have the you know the pan out of this you know TV that they say the final line and it you know turns to static and the movie ends. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, that final line. Um, where is it here? I've got it written down. For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. That that's my favourite Shakespeare line. Of yeah. I know that there are more like complex and uh, poetic lines out there. But um, for my money, that one is just, I mean, it captures the emotion that you're feeling there so yeah, so well and so simply. Mm. And yeah. Shakespeare yeah. had some good ideas. Yeah. <laughs> and with the it's fact... It's almost like he's a good writer or something. And with the fact that we are aware of what's going to happen makes certain moments very... Almost like they can tell what's going to happen. The characters are seeing the future in a sense there's the scene before romeo and his mates go to the capulet party the queen mab scene in it's almost is it before or after uh it's after after. and romeo goes on the whole thing of and they dream of love and he explains that yeah well dreamers dream but we're living yeah so let's go live yeah and romeo has this really a uh, significant, I find it as a very significant moment, uh, particularly in this viewing, where he sort of talks about what his dream was, and it's almost prophetic in a sense. Like, it's, it kind of comes off as a bit of a warning, but also a, I don't know, it just felt like there were certain inflection points where things could change, but of course they can't change. The star of the movie already told us what was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and it's moments like that that really got me. Yeah. Uh, Juliet has a moment uh, closer to the end that's very similar when Romeo's heading out to Mantua. Uh, and it just really gets me, because I'm just like, well, gee, that sucks. The, I, the um, Yeah. And and how good is Claire Danes as Juliet? Very this? good. Very good. Like It's like a star-making performance. I'm not even sure she was an adult when this movie was made. No, I 16. Yeah, it's it's um, such a an assured performance. I think of all of the younger actors, she is the one that navigates the dialogue the best. She is the one that is complete in complete control of the script oh, yeah. at all times. And um, there's an interesting story because, of course, you know, um, Romeo and Juliet tend to be cast pretty young, and, and Juliet tends to be cast younger than Romeo, but. Um, to hear the stories of, you know, who else was considered. And, and Natalie Portman was apparently considered. Uh, and to hear her tell it after the fact, um, 
they did screen tests with her and DiCaprio, but she looked so young still compared to DiCaprio that she puts it like it looked like he was molesting me. <laughs> yeah, was how and she Baz put Lerman it. And Baz even was like, eh, "Nah, yeah, this is not good. This is bad." So it, it's a, it's a I, I imagine it's going to be a pretty daunting role for a young actor because it's got to be a young actor. Yeah, but hmm. at the same time, it's like you know, it's so fraught and intense. Um, I think Lerman's Lerman's maison d'etre, I suppose his his general sense of style is implemented so well into this oh, yeah. as well. Like Lerman has such a such a specific rhythm of cutting and editing, mm, yeah, and such a specific type of framing and cinematography. He loves melodrama. He loves making things yeah. big and making things loud and as interesting visually and orally as possible in a way that you either love or hate. I love it. I, I, I know love that it. Are... I, I love how he does it in this. I love how he does it in Moulin Rouge, although that's mm. a little bit a little bit too much. That has a story-based oh, reason for it, he too. He takes it to 11 in Moulin Rouge, especially the yeah. um, the the bit where Ewan McGregor is, is high. Yeah, like Kylie Minogue comes in as a fairy. Yeah, like when Jim Broadbent's going, because you can't can't can, and everyone's jumping around looking like, you know, circus clowns, basically. Are we going to do Moulin Rouge? Oh, absolutely. That's one of my favourite movies. I adore it so much. And I love how he does it in Great Gatsby. I love that movie I haven't seen The Great Gatsby, actually. It is on the list. Yeah, it's very good. I, I did see Australia, which is not on the list, but um, I don't really have a desire to revisit it. That, uh, from my memory of it, that was his most um, tame. tame. Yeah, his most yeah. It doesn't... controlled. It felt like he was trying to suppress his own instincts for yeah, which um, yeah. to to make I don't know a more traditional movie, which is not what I want yeah. from Baz Luhrmann. It doesn't feel like him. No. Yeah, but it, like it watching feels wrong. Watching Romeo and Juliet again, I'd seen it years ago as, as a kid. Um, yeah. I'd seen, I actually seen Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge at around the same time um, when I was quite young, and I didn't understand them at all. I didn't, I didn't have the maturity or the the context to be able to interpret what the hell this director was doing yeah. right now, um, and so I didn't really care for them when I first saw them. But then I saw Moulin Rouge a few years ago, and I I loved it because it was like exactly my kind of speed now as an adult yeah and seeing romeo and juliet again now same thing and it just makes me like yeah i want to see more baz lerman movies i want to see the great gatsby i i'm uh, that's the only reason that i'm interested in that elvis movie you know mm. i hope that's as crazy as this is in terms of the great gatsby has the great gatsby has the same depth of character that this does like he intrinsically understands these people that elvis movie should be like rocket man by way of Baz Luhrmann. Like Hell it yeah. should be that, that kind of fan, fantastical musical element with Baz Luhrmann. Mm, that'll be but wild. I, if it's I not hope wild, what it, I'll be disappointed. I hope that's yeah. what it is. But then like even like year, not years ago, months ago when we were still doing the news, um, there was that one that we talked about that he, that movie that he is making called uh, The Master and Margarita based on yeah. that Russian novel about uh, the devil's arrival in 1930s Moscow with uh, a talking black cat. Um, <laughs> That's and, awesome! 
yeah, like that's less like, um, yeah, I want to see Baz Luhrmann do that. I want to see pretty much anything Baz Luhrmann will do. Um, He's one of those wild auteurs. He is. He is. You don't get that many of them. And he kind of, he does unfairly, I think, get sort of lost in the shuffle of the Wes Andersons and the Tarantinos. And, and Baz Luhrmann's sort of like the the guy that, that the mainstream doesn't quite remember as much, you know? Yeah. Baz Luhrmann is Michael Bay if he was smart. I feel like Baz Luhrmann also has been kind of, uh, maybe that absence of public perception is that it, it, yeah. it has kind of been a, a, a muted showing from him for a while that when you think about it in the last 20 years he's only done two movies one of them was australia and one of them was the great gatsby so really it's just the great gatsby that we're talking about that had any real impact or interested people in any way so i feel like i don't know if he was more prolific or if he hadn't had that detour into traditionalism with australia that maybe he would have more of a uh public image public persona Mm. that people were more aware of i am so glad we're on the same page about australia Mm. it's been a long time since i've seen it though because when it came out i was just like nah this doesn't feel right i don't hate it i mean it's fine it's fine but it's not it's not what you want put it this way yeah it's not what it's not what i want from baz luhrmann and it's it's the kind of uh traditional I don't know quite how how to put it. I I I kind of like it in that it is giving more. It is telling an Australian story in yeah. at a scale and at a level that we normally don't get uh, Australian stories told at. You know, probably the best part of that movie I think is is the bombing of Darwin. Oh, um, definitely. Because that's I such think a... the most interesting part of it is the focus on the indigenous characters, mm. like the little boy. Yeah, I think that's a good character. I suppose what I'm saying is it's just like these the little patches of our history, yeah. um, of Australian history, that tend not to get recognised on the international stage. Like, uh, you know, everyone knows about Pearl Harbour, how, you know, there were bombings on America, attacks on American yeah. soil in World War Two. Very few people outside of Australia know that we had the same thing happen here. Yeah. Um, but, so there's part of me that appreciates that just from a, from a sort of, I suppose, patriotic um <laughs> level but there's also there's also like marks. i think it's i think it's a perfectly competent very beautifully photographed um sort of you know epic movie you know of the the of the dances with wolves of the lincoln of the um kingdom of heaven kingdom of heaven variety yeah and i just think and it, that's fine it's just sort of it's it's just I've seen it. I've seen that type of movie before, you yeah. know, and there's nothing about it particularly that makes it stand out from the pack in that regard. Beyond the obvious connection of it's about Australian, I am Australian, and it, certainly knowing more about Baz Luhrmann now than I did then, it's not remotely what I want to see from yeah. from Baz Luhrmann. Mm. It's like if Baz Luhrmann had all of the personality sucked out of him and. You know, yeah. he just made a traditional movie, which is not what I'm interested mm. in. I think he's too unique and valuable of a voice to silo him off into making the same kind of movies that everyone else is making. Yeah, exactly. Can we talk about some of the supporting cast? I want to talk about Paul Savino, Brian Dennehy, and Miriam Margoyles as their Miriam side Margulies, characters. Yeah. She is yeah. Margulies, yeah. She's fantastic in this. She also, gives the nurse such a 
warmth. She's a proper mother to Juliet. Um, also, who was the other one that that stood out for me watching it? Forget his name. The the police captain. The police oh, captain. the guy who plays Prince. Vondi Curtis Hall. He's the yes. other character I want to play. Throw your mistempered weapons to the ground. Well, that's the bit Three at the end that I rules. that I love too. How he's walking down the steps and he's like, "All are punished," and he's just shouting it at everyone. Um, mm. That's that's I one too of the have great... lost a brace of kinsmen today. Mm, that's which one of that the, line the, doesn't actually make any sense anymore because Paris doesn't die. But sure, I feel like you can give that to um, if they had given that to be Postlethwaite, that would have made a little more sense just because of the emotional connection that he had to Romeo yeah. and Juliet. But. Mm. Uh, yeah, it, it's yeah. so brilliantly performed by Vondi Curtis Hall, who, by He's the way, really... is a director. Um, oh, yeah. He mostly television. Um, he directed, you know, Boston Legal. He directed ep- episodes of ER. He was, um, he, he is still primarily an actor, but he played, uh, he played one of the regular characters on X on ER. Had an ex who he played the new husband to. He also played Ben Urich on Daredevil. Yes. Did he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the Netflix show, not the movie. Yeah, he's he's good. He's always good in things. What do you think about Paul Savino in this? I think he takes it to the hilt, and it's brilliant. Mm. I, I I liked it a lot. I, I I like him, too. I, I recently... I talked about Nixon a while back. He plays Henry Kissinger in Nixon. He's got that, <laughs> that very specific syntax when he's mm. playing Henry Kissinger, because Henry Kissinger has just had one of the most recognisable voices of all time. Um, yeah. So to see him go from that to this, and to then see him, there's, there's great behind-the-scenes footage on um, on the disc that was f- so fascinating to watch, That because it was just raw footage of them shooting the scene where he gets physical with everyone after Juliet mm. refuses to marry Paris. Yeah, And it was just this fascinating look at Baz Luhrmann and all of the actors sort of workshopping the scene and working, yeah. wa- walking it through. And Miriam Margulies and Paul Savino sort of having this, not an argument, but sort of like trying to... An artistic to, disagreement. An artistic disagreement where Miriam Margulies was like, I would get in your face. I would put my finger up in your face. I would, you know, put myself between you and her. And Paul Savino's like, well, I don't have a problem with that, but if it gets to that point, then we have to address then we, then we've got to figure out some way for me to deal with you in the scene because I've got a I wouldn't put up with that you know I'm your boss I'm a very aggressive kind of guy so and I don't necessarily want to get to the point where I'm just running around punching everyone in the scene you know so yeah, it, it and, was, and, and he's not necessarily happy with women saying their opinions yeah so, so that was just you know a, a fascinating thing, and then of course you see it in the final movie, and they got through it with having Miriam Margulies come in, and then sort of just having him grab her by the sides and remove her, yeah. and then she stays out for the rest of it. And we, it, it's such an, it was it was really a fascinating um, look at the way that those kinds of things are workshopped in a way that we don't most people don't think about when they see it. That most people don't think about just how many decisions have been made how yeah. the actors have worked together with the director to decide where they will be you know what they will be doing what their behavior will be and what will that mean for all of the other performances in the scene it's it's it was it was interesting and i i um maybe like miriam margulies and uh and paul savino a lot more because i just saw how professional and how yeah 
invested in what they were doing they were there's oh, a there's oh. a hell of a lot of precision when it comes to acting taking direction making those choices it's a constant stream of i have to be here i have to be here i have to be here i have to remember to say all of these lines at one time and especially something as wordy as the shakespeare that takes a whole lot of internal translation just to be able to perform the lines accurately uh it's a hell of a job to do. And it's like, acting isn't just you lock yourself in a room and you come up with a character and then you just get to set and you don't talk to anybody. It's, it's all of the best performances come from having a dialogue with your other act with the other actors and being like, okay, what's the relationship between these characters? How do we get to that point? How do we block this? How do we do all of that? It's What are you comfortable const- with doing? It's it's a constant artistic conversation. And that's really what you can see with, say, Baz Luhrmann, where he likes to talk with the actors, get their opinion on this. He's not just going to get up there like John Frankenheimer and say, do it like this, do it like this. He wants to have the actors bring themselves to the characters mm-hmm. because... Otherwise, what was the point in hiring them? And that's the thing is, Sorvino came in with this breadth of experience Yeah, that if Baz Luhrmann didn't decide to tap into that, that'd be really stupid. He has him do, like, a little bit of opera singing in the party scene, and it's like, okay, that's that's great. Paul Sorvino is a trained opera singer, but still, like, what? <laughs> The, I'd like to talk also, I, I feel like we're winding down a little bit here, but I'd like to talk before we do uh, move on that the production design and the cinematography oh. done by Catherine Martin and Donald McAlpine, respectively. Um, it, it, it is, and that's another constant between all of Baz Luhrmann's movies is that it looks so good and it looks yeah. so creative and opulent. Um just the, the part in uh the 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 stage that's falling apart near the beach that yeah. Romeo and his boys spend some time at that's Sycamore an, Grove. Yeah, that's such an interesting um thing. The, the the design we already talked about the fish tank in the bathroom. The the design and the trappings of the party that they're at, and it's it always looks really thoughtful and detailed yeah like you can mm. see how much care has gone into it yeah like and, on um, billboards and advertisements and magazines all throughout the film you've got quotes from other shakespeare plays shoot for thunder that's from the second part of henry the sixth um stuff that dreams are made on is a quote from the tempest and the name of a uh, whiskey in is this prospero. is prospero um the, I, th- I think it was also such yeah. a really interesting decision to set the, to to make it kind of a um we we didn't even really even talk about the mafia family aspect of it all mm. that that they are two up two opposing gang families and yeah. it's some sort of like dystopian you know i don't know the worst worst cityscape that you could possibly imagine mm. having to exist in all these gang wars everywhere the police going around you know three get, civil brawls yeah shootouts in the middle of the street like it's 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 almost verging on the first Mad Max in yeah. <laughs> the level of social unrest that is depicted here, and I, I thought that was such a such a strange yeah. and again kind of interesting 
when you think about when it was made, when you think about 1996 and we're shooting him, with, in, I know, I suppose Baz Luhrmann says that he wanted it to be Miami, but I see it more as California as an Australian. Oh, yeah. Just because I, I'm not familiar with the, the, the different beaches in uh, America. <laughs> but it's also so interesting when you think about that this is, this is being released three years after, say, the LA riots. Yeah. Mm. This image of civil unrest, and not to equate what was happening in the LA riots with, you know, gang violence a or anything like squalo. that. A family squabble. A family squabble, yeah. Yeah. But, like, the simple image of chaos on the streets of a very uh, modern-looking city yeah. that the police are struggling to control, I don't think there's any denying that that is pressing buttons that have been um, set up by recent events when that movie is mm. released. Yeah. And it's... I love how it's sort of... Everything in this movie is baked into the world. Everything is just so on purpose. Like, with all those advertisements, everyone speaks with the language. There's that funny bit where before they find out that the Capulets are holding a party, there's the lady on the TV saying, if you be not of the House of Montague, come! And it's this whole... You can tell that these characters live in this world. There's the fact that uh, the Daddy Capulet and Daddy Montague, they you can tell that they're tired of the fighting. They can't be bothered anymore. It's just that the young people can't stop. And they've they don't even know in, why. They've been brought up in this violence, and there's no... Like, you hear Tybalt say something to Romeo, like, thou art a villain. What? has Romeo done? Nothing. It's just because he's... It's because he's a Montague. And there's no good reason for their anger towards each other. There's no logic to it. Um, Kind of one of the weirder, like, oh my god, it's that guy, for me, was um, M. Emmett Walsh as the yeah. apothecary. Yeah. Because he's just <laughs> such, a, such a particular type that to see him turn up in a Shakespeare movie reciting and Shakespeare... And to speak with... Yeah, it's yeah. just odd. Not only to speak the, do the Shakespeare, but do it well. To do it well. Mm. Like that's <laughs> such a. What, what's that line that he has when she, when Romeo's trying to buy the the poison? He says, um, "My poverty and not my conscience bid me to to yeah. accept or something along those lines." And I pay not Romeo's, your conscience, but your poverty. Yeah, I pay your poverty and not your conscience. Is the response? Yeah. Um, yeah. M. Emmett Walsh is one of those guys that just has the most interesting. Um, energy, energy, yeah, and such an interesting face too. He's always, it's, oh yeah, he holds the screen in such a unusual like, way. Like there's one word that sums up his entire vibe: harbinger. <laughs> uh, you yeah, know he those, looks like the guy. You know those be, like yeah. traditional horror movies. How there's always that character, like uh, the gas station attendant or the person uh, who runs the tackle shop. Or, yeah, they're just like. Danger is coming. Yeah, he's the guy that tells everyone not to go to Camp Crystal Lake because exactly. like, he's not—he's not actually that guy. He's not that actor. But I'm saying that that is his type. You know. Oh yeah. Um. He and he—he he he looks like he's day. ninety years old, and he has looked like he is ninety years old for the past forty years. <laughs> <laughs> On his IMDb, it says wonderfully talented, heavy set character actor. 
M. Emmett Walsh has made a solid career of playing corrupt cops, deadly crooks, and zany comedic roles since the early 1970s. It's kind of a backhander, yeah. isn't it? The wonderfully talented, heavy set character actor. <laughs> you know I mean? It's kind of like a, you know, going in for a high five and slapping in the face instead. <laughs> <laughs> it's like up top, nut shot. <laughs> Anyways, is is there anything else but that yeah, you two would like, like to touch on, or I? Um, I would just like to mention the design of that of Juliet's tomb. Oh my god! Like the lighting, the flowers, the in the the entire just look of it is just gorgeous. Oh yeah, it looks fantastic. The Catholic imagery in this movie is very fascinating, and I'd like to get like you're a Catholic, so I'd like to get your like opinion of it. Like it's. The use of religious imagery is fascinating to me in this film. Yeah, it's it's very... Um, it was also tying into that kind of the fetishization of religious symbols also, in yeah. a way. Mm, that, yeah. that, that kind of, like, um, people who aren't necessarily devout wearing, uh, wearing crosses and, and things, especially, yeah. like, how strangely it became, like, a, a accessory in gangland outfits for a yeah. while it seemed like in the 90s um well there's a there but, is but a I, very I think, like sincere catholic catholic oh, yeah element. yeah yeah but i i always find it interesting when shakespeare's doing um catholic characters uh because or members of, of uh, the church because that's happening at a time when um henry the eighth has gotten pretty pissed at yeah. the, the church <laughs> And yeah. as in fact, there was there was a period of you know a hundred years basically when Catholics were being pretty heavily persecuted uh, in um, in England. It was sort of an outlawed religion. It was you know really frowned yeah. upon. They would do raids to you know find the crucifixes that were hidden in people's houses and yeah. um, and things like that. Because you know Henry VIII wanted to get divorced and. Uh, the Pope wouldn't let him, so he said, "Fine, I'm going to go and make my own church where everyone could get divorces, and it's and it's cool." Yeah, and that's still the church that the Queen is the head of today. It's literally the Church of the England church exists. Of England. Um, yeah, the Church of England was was born out of that period. So um, I'm going to make my own religion with hookers and blackjack. <laughs> but um, it's like Henry the Eighth, defender of the faith, bull. Shit, my son. But it, it's, it's it's always interesting to see the depictions of priests, uh, Catholic yeah. priests in Shakespeare, because I know that that's what's happening at the time. That that was a period of of strong persecution. I know that there are a lot of Catholics who would like to pretend that it's exactly the same now, even though they're not being persecuted <laughs> in the slightest anymore. But um, the it's interesting because they're always presented in a positive light, or at least normally. Mm. Like, yeah. I think of Romeo and Juliet. You know, Father Lawrence, he's a, he's a pretty cool guy. Um, yeah. The, like, the, he talks about drugs. He's got a giant cross tattoo on his back. Yeah, the priest, the, the priest in Much Ado About Nothing, who yeah. is the one that, again, the one that suggests the fake the death scheme. <laughs> um, it's always the <laughs> clergy. This, it's always the clergy this, that brings it up. Yeah, Maybe into this fake the death stuff, could mm. it be the whole... Uh, just fake your death for three days, yeah. then, then we'll back. be golden. I think it's that. <laughs> um, Friar Lawrence also, he's such a fascinating character. How he's like, hey, you know what? I was kind of worried to begin with about you getting with a Capulet. But 
this could work. So I'm just going to, I guess, just go with it and see what happens. And then when shit pops off and Romeo kills Tybalt, it's like, you are so lucky right now that you're not dead right now. Holy shit. Um, a bounty of blessings alight upon your back. And you still want to die? What the hell? Uh, there's this great Romeo line that really shows you how young the kid actually is. It's the, uh, there is no world outside Verona's walls. What we see of, like, Mantua, I'm like, fair. You're probably right. <laughs> probably right. It's probably an irradiated wasteland. Like, George Miller probably snuck onto set and directed those segments. But it's like, you know, yeah, it's... I think the biggest tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, in my opinion, and this is getting down just to the play, is these are young kids. They are so in lust of each other. It's 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 barely even love. It's... I don't, know. I, I don't get that. I, I have always interpreted that as to be pretty genuine. But they're still out of yeah, their depth. They're, they're out of their yeah. depth. They are... It's It's that line. It's... Those who rush too fast stumble. So they stumble who run fast. I, is that same? I don't they think that it are... is meant to be... I, I don't think that you are meant to interpret their relationship like that. I think you're meant to to interpret their relationship as exactly what it looks like, as, as entirely genuine. The tragedy is in the world around them mm. yeah, and... not allowing that. And I get that, and I'm not saying that they never should have been together. I'm trying to say that in their haste, in their haste, they went to the extremes. Yeah, it's... And their world couldn't... Their world and the people in it couldn't... Doesn't fit with those extremes. It's... They loved each other, and it's... The tragedy in it, for me, is that Juliet is given an out. Romeo is given an out. Juliet could have left. Her father literally says, leave or marry Paris. That's what he says. She could have left. She could have. At any moment, they both could have left yeah, but and gone somewhere else. That's the thing. That's and, what but, I'm... and that's the tragedy of it. It They didn't need to die. No, of course not. None but of them needed to that's die. That's what makes it a tragedy. They yeah. didn't need to die, but they also did yeah and that's that's the crux of shakespeare's tragedies he tells you what you're gonna get and you spend the next two hours traffic of the stage hoping that he was bullshitting you yeah but he's not can i um uh i'll tell you off here it would be a spoiler for another movie anyway um (laughs) let's we're running it juliet don't bother we're running a bit long, so why don't we uh, move on to what our MVP is for this movie and who, what our favourite sequence is. Um, I'll start off, I I would say Baz Luhrmann, but I think that that's probably going to be a common thing. So I'm going to try and think outside the box here, outside of the very obvious one, and instead say Claire Danes, because I think that she is the heart of this movie. She yeah. is, I, I said at the earlier on that I think that um, Pete Postlethwaite is one of the two best performances in this movie. I think she's the other, and I think she is the emotional core of the movie. She is very young at the making of this. She hasn't done that much uh, acting-wise before. 
but she holds her own. She holds her own against Leonardo DiCaprio, and he's better than him in this mm. movie, I think. So, uh, yeah, she gives the movie a lot of heart and spirit, and uh, I find that very impressive considering her relative age and inexperience at the time. John? And your favourite oh, moment? Favourite sequence. Oh, oh, my favourite sequence, sorry. Um, I've got to I've got to go with, like, the, the meet-cute, the first meeting. Mm. Um, all of the stuff with I'm kissing you in the background, the stuff in the elevator, and and it, it's so well done by DiCaprio and Danes, but it's also, uh, as I think it was you that said, Harley, it, it's, it's so much that music as well, that it has this kind of sadness to it, this, this bittersweet longing um, that plays into, again, the, the, the idea that we all know how this is going to end. You know, we all know at this point that an hour and a half from now, we're going to watch these two dead in a church. Yeah. Which, by the way, we, d- we didn't talk about either how how well um, that scene is done just in terms of like, the, this whole movie has been full of sound and music and how at the end it's just silence. Yeah. And all of the voices, they echo, but it's just silence throughout that whole scene, how well that was done. All of the music leaves the world the moment the young die, hmm. essentially. I think Anyways, for, how me, about you, for me, I have to say that it's probably Baz Luhrmann. You sort of preempted me with that, yeah. I think if if this same idea was being done by a different director, it would lose some of the energy and pizzazz. Baz Luhrmann brought such an intelligence to this version. He understood the story. He's... He understands stories so well. He understands character so well. That's what makes him a good director. He gets down into the weeds of everything that he does. That's why he makes so few movies. Because, and it's it's sort of that uh, Daniel Day-Lewis thing where, in, in a less sort of method way, he lives this one idea. Like Richard Stanley, he lives this one idea, this movie, and until he can finish the movie it lives in his brain and it shows his attention to detail the choices of the people he hired the use of music is just very well done i think i want to say that my favorite part of the movie is everything from the beginning to the end (laughs) um but and i agree the kissing you segment is just beautiful I think I have to say that my favourite moment is the Queen Mab speech from this uh, run-through because I just appreciated so much the performance of Mercutio. He he hits such a fever pitch and then brings it down to such a solemn, subdued... Vulnerability. Vulnerability where you see the tenderness of the friendship between Romeo and Mercutio. You see that... Romeo is just saying to him, look, calm down. You're, you're scaring me, essentially. And there's such a dread to the scene as well. And it's so well adapted to a modern narrative. Like, in the play, he doesn't actually take a drug and get high and go to the party. But in this, they, talk, they use the discussion of an agate stone on the forefinger of an alderman to say we're talking about a drug here we're talking about like lsd or acid ecstasy ecstasy and it's just so well acted by everyone involved i love this movie so much 
Um, I'd have to say my two MVPs, since... It's difficult, because I have the supreme urge to either say Baz Luhrmann or William Shakespeare uh, (laughs) as the the writer, but that would be a bit how you're going. Shakespeare has an asterisk next to his name with this. I will say though, like so, I'm sorry to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt you, Harley, but like the the Shakespeare thing, I don't know. You could you could have him be the MVP. He he is still the he's the credited author. writer on IMDb. <laughs> so uh, he but... has more writing credits than any other person on IMDb. He has one thousand five hundred and thirty two writing credits. That's he's also boy. credited. He's also credited on the soundtrack for a number of movies because of the the little bits of. Um, songs words. that he he yeah. wrote, including on an episode of Gotham, he's credited on the soundtrack for. Yeah, he should be credited with a partial story credit for Professor Pig, but uh, we'll know. get to that. Uh, but in lieu of Shakespeare, I'm going to say my two MVPs are the production designer Catherine Martin and the art director Doug Hardwick. This is like the visual world building is mm. incredible. Set design, it's just. It's a lived-in world. Oh, it's so good. That's the shit I like to see in movies. Absolutely. I love to see a lived-in world. The, the little details. And in a lot of sanitized studio filmmaking, you do not get that. Oh, a lived-in in, world goes a long way for us. Yeah. In auteur works, you get that. And Baz Luhrmann is one of the great auteurs. And he hires the right people to create these worlds. And these two people were brilliant at this and they managed to take the style of shakespeare's stuff like quotes from his other plays and stuff yeah my favorite scene or sequence this is gonna be a bit of a strange one but the end credits okay for the simple fact that after all of that chaos and tragedy we have the song exit music for a film playing Mm. talking to us yeah Mm. Us as the audience, from the perspective of these characters who have gone through so much shit and tragedy, blood and death, accusing us, the audience, of not just watching it and enjoying it, but making it happen over and over and over again because we like watching it. Yeah. Well, I think it, that, it's also that, like about the societal constructs that caused it. Yeah, that exactly. too. There's that, that beautiful like, the line like, that's. Oh, sorry, continue. The line that sticks with me is the "We hope that you choke." Yeah, that you choke. It's so accusatory, and that it's just Tom York and Nigel Godrich. They they were shown t- the last twenty minutes of the film, and Tom York was like, "That's fantastic. Yeah, I can write a song for that." Mm. <laughs> oh yes, and it's just the perfect way to cap off this film. And it's also used in uh, the Black Mirror episode Shut Up and Dance at the end of it, and also a piano version is used in Westworld. Final episode of season one, which is excellent. And it's interesting because a line from Romeo and Juliet, these violent delights have violent ends, is a a plot point in Westworld. All right, uh, why don't we say what we'll be watching next week? We will be doing next week an episode on Scream, the 1996 Wes Craven horror satire. 
If anyone would like to watch along at home, it is available on Foxtel Now, Stan, Amazon Prime Video, and inexplicably Tubi for streaming in Australia if you are interested. Tubi, in, coming up the rear. Come on, boy. Along. I don't know. Come on. We might actually it. watch it on Tubi. <laughs> Why would you do that when it has... Where it's only available in standard definition. It's only it has ads inserted in. Why would you choose to watch it when it's available in those other places? It'd be amusing. It's oh just so that you can be contrarian and say that you watched it on Tubi. That's the only reason. Oh, yeah. We've seen this movie before. We're fans of the franchise, so yeah. I don't know. Could be uh, no, no, we'll we'll watch it in good quality. Oh, Jesus. Uh, so yeah, I have been Holly Lewis. Uh, oh yes, uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy Counter, the link to which is in the description wherever it appears in your podcast app of choice. You can find the blog that John and I run called On the Bright Side, uh, link to, link is in the description wherever it appears. Uh, also, there's a link to our Twitter, which will be getting a bit more activity with, like, teasers of upcoming films we're working on, you know, talking about some... <laughs> Not films that we're working no, on, films no. that we'll be talking about. Uh, some hints as to what we've seen within the week, uh, that sort of stuff, because I need to do posting stuff to the Twitter. Uh, you can reach us there with any sort of feedback or... What you guys thought about these movies. Yeah. If you watched along at home, uh, what you thought about them. Did you give uh, the Twitter handle? It's on the... I don't know why one, because I'm going to get the full name as a Twitter handle. Uh, the Twitter also, handle's in the description. Below. Yeah. Also, like, comment, uh, subscribe. On your podcast app of choice. Yep. Because the ratings, while they help our visibility, comments help more. Yeah. Uh... That's at least what I heard. <laughs> so, we hear varying things from the podcast companies. It's weird. Uh, so, I've been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be Jean Lewis. Wake from your sleep The drying of your tears We escape We escape Pack And get dressed Before Your father Hears Breaks loose